Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 9, the Auto Tracking Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's episode, the passing of Blockbuster into the Blockbuster Night has us feeling wistful about the VHS era. Do we really miss the days of clamshell boxes and B-Kind Rewind? Or has nostalgia gotten the better of us? We'll also look at the uses and misuses of the Bechdel test, which has become an increasingly popular way to determine gender bias in film. And hopefully, we'll pass the Bechdel test ourselves. I then introduce a game called Nude Review, based on descriptions of popular movies from the Celebrity Nude Database. Then we wrap it up as usual with our quickfire recommendation face-off, 30 seconds to sell. Stay tuned, dissolvers. In his piece about the shuttering of Blockbuster Video, our own Nathan Rabin wrote about the time he spent working for Blockbuster, which he called the Death Star of video (laughs) store franchises. Blockbuster gave a lot of cinephiles headaches over the years for crushing independent video stores and for its refusal to stock NC-17 rated titles in The Last Temptation of Christ. But its closure also brought us back to the VHS era, which is when most of us at the Dissolve got our film educations and made a lot of great discoveries. And while I think we'd all agree that DVD and now Blu-ray are superior formats in almost every way, our VHS dreams are not entirely nightmares. Here to reminisce with me are Nathan Rabin, Keith Phipps, and uh, Noel Murray. Hello. Hello. So let's start with, uh, I think all of us have some sort of a history with video stores. Maybe that's a good place to start. Nathan, how about you? Sure. I guess when I was a kid, uh, video stores were paradise. They were like my favorite place on earth. I remember wandering through video stores, independent video stores, uh, just looking at all the boxes and thinking like, oh my God, someday I'm going to be able to like watch all of these movies. They're going to be so cool and the monsters and sexy ladies and like this is what the future is all about. This is what being a teenager, this is an adult is all about. And then, you know, when I turned 16 years old, I got a job at, at blockbuster video so uh, i have an enormous enormous affection uh, for video stores in general and specifically blockbuster which i think i love um both because I, I i worked there and it has this whole aesthetic that's very cheesy but also kind of endearing but also just because it was a video store you know it was a place where people could get movies and that was really special to me yeah it was, i mean they felt similarly magic to me and 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 uh I had a very cool video store uh, that got crushed by Blockbuster uh, eventually. Yeah. Uh, growing up in my town, that uh, had a whole cult film section uh, that was extremely uh, influential on, on my renting habits and, and film taste. But, but uh, I mean, also uh, to pick up the story from there, I also worked at a video store with Nathan Raymond actually for a year as my first job out, out of out of out of grad school, uh, which uh, may not be the logical career path, but also gave me sort of the the, the film education I never had in college at all I'd, I'd take home two movies a night and catch up with all these directors and and you know genres and uh, films I, i'd only heard read about or heard about and, and uh, never seen and it was uh, it was a wonderful experience how about you Noel? i had almost exactly the same experiences i remember being a teenager uh when we got our first vcr and our first video store membership back when it cost like money when <laughs> you had to like pay fifty dollars to start oh, right. off yeah, 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 to get yeah. your membership and you know the store being close enough to our house that even though i didn't have a car i could walk or ride my bike over there and kind of have my run of the place and you know like most teenage boys do uh figuring out the things i could rent that were unrated <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know exciting in their own way because i had a very strict no r-rated movies policy from my parents and then as an adult, or actually as a, a postgraduate, when I graduated, graduated from college, uh, working at a blockbuster video, just like Nathan did, uh, and having the experience of trying to find 
the cool things that were kind of hidden away on the back du- back dusty shelves of Blockbuster Video, which was which was fun in and of itself. I think I had a similar experience with Blockbuster in terms of the unrated thing. I think I think Blockbuster <laughs> actually encouraged that workaround because they wouldn't stock NC seventeen rated movies. But I, I I got to see Orgy of the Dead. Uh, they had some, <laughs> there's some there's some nude aerobics videos on there. Uh, you know you could you could kind of find these these things that were as long as it wasn't rated they'd they'd stock it. Uh, so, but Henry and June they wouldn't they wouldn't stock. And with that, and things kind of happened. You know, I was I was in suburban Georgia. We really didn't have. I mean, Blockbuster was the only game in town, and I think uh, okay. I think that's the experience for a lot of people. And so my relationship with it was is was fraught, but also you know that was the source of a lot of things that I got a chance to see. Um, there was a time when I cut up my card over uh, Last Nation of Christ, but part of that was like I had access to a better video store, <laughs> you know, and then I had to get a card again because uh, I lost that access uh, when I moved to Miami. But uh, I think my, my favorite video store experience was Video Library in Athens, which is where I worked between uh, undergrad and grad school. And it was, it was the best store in Athens, but it had, what it, what it was was that basically we uh, made our money by, through hardcore pornography, uh, uh, <laughs> renting, the, renting it out at $5 a pop, and we'd get these guys, these guys would show up like before we opened, they'd be outside yeah. the door, and they'd like rent this whole, huge stack of films that we'd already have set aside for them, really, really seedy stuff, but then I'd, I'd uh, use, we'd use that money to buy up, you know, Mizuguchi films and like th- stock the back shelves with them, it was fantastic, but one of the things I miss, and I don't, I don't know, uh, this is just having all of that in front of you, I mean, you go into a video store, and you just, you, you just see more than you can you know, on, online, and, and that makes a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, looking at Netflix, you get to see what you're looking at, and then uh, three or four, rec- you know, recommendations, or five recommendations it chooses for you, and it's a pretty good algorithm based on what you're looking at, but at the same time, you know, have the whole vast expanse of filmdom spread out before you. That, that's the thing you lose with physical media, and, and we're never going to get it back, so we may as well not lament too much, but <laughs> there, there is a loss there. Right. Uh, and and the, there's a loss of culture, too. I mean, I, mean, I used to spend... Um, you know, when I was a teenager and, and young adult, I, I, I killed all my time in video stores and record stores and bookstores, and now I don't know what to do with myself sometimes. But, but there is there is that sort of culture of like-minded people gathering together that, that we lose with the loss of video stores. Yeah, I mean, it was a place, you know, where people talked about movies, where that was the primary thing that kind of went on. And that was a really, really special thing, and there isn't really a place in our culture right now, at least, you know, commercial space. Well, there are four of us, uh, four of us all have you know all are right about film and we all worked at video stores and it's weird to think that that we're kind of 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 the last or second to last generation that's going to have that kind of background right i think it's a very immersive way to to study film uh, well i think, well, that, I, I, think I, the, yeah. oh, I, I was just going to say that i think the next generation of reviewers will be uh, recommend, sentient recommendation engines yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, it's interesting though because I lamented this a little bit on on one of our boards, like sort of the nostalgic way, you know, of discovery, like finding weird videos at the bottom. And it sounds like today's cinephiles have their own. Like, I get nostalgic about seeing links to certain odd download sites, you know. So it, it is nostalgia is going to creep in, and then that kind of like sort of fetishiza- fetishization is going to creep in, to, no matter how you discover things. But but for me, it's always going to be tied to VHS boxes. Right. When I feel like being, uh, we're kind of the VHS generation. I mean, I started working at Blockbuster video uh, right after Reservoir Dogs came out. And, you know, definitely Quentin Tarantino worked in a video store. I felt like that definitely informed his sensibility. Just this idea of, like, you have so much more access than you did before. Like, it was an exciting, exciting thing. And I've talked about this in the podcast before, but the movie Rewind This kind of captures just what a game changer it was 
to have access to all of these things and just never stops evolving and changing. But, you know, with each evolution, you know, something is lost. And I think that's worth mourning. Well, let's, I mean, why don't we talk about the other side of it then? I mean, what were the downsides of the VHS era? They didn't look very good. <laughs> For starters, like I just watched um, a very a DVD, a very gray market DVD of, of a film that was obviously just been transferred over from VHS, and it's like, wow, just you, this, the lack of clarity and and, and is is stunning. And, and this particular copy also like kind of did the had some tracking issues as well, oh, so yeah. kind of rolled over a little bit. Oh, track! And, and here's the fucking weird way that nostalgia works. Like I had this surge of nostalgia upon you saying traffic. <laughs> like thinking about like you know the dust and the distortion and I think it's one of the things they talked about in Rewind This was about how like with videos like they would have you know with the nude scenes like you could tell where they were coming up because that's when everything started to get fuzzy and grainy and things like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like, and uh, we get nostalgic 16, for things that kind handles, of handles like the one shot. Yeah, oh, totally. And you could totally see and and again it was like this fingerprint and this thumbprint that had been left by all of the perverts uh, <laughs> who had watched that video before, you know, in eager anticipation of, you know, a Phoebe Cates taking off her top or whatnot. Um, so I feel like that's one of the weird things. But again, we're also going to find those kind of weird, you know, glitches in the machine in the new way of, of seeing and processing and are we uh, distributing we are it's not a oh, speck definitely. of not a speck of dirt on anything it's, well the it's, uh it's, uh, it's, but i mean you know yeah, definitely i mean the fact that like vhs is <laughs> that was a shitty technology it's not, it's not, it was not. very bad it broke all the time it had poor picture quality there was not a whole lot of information it could hold it was not compact in any way well, either <laughs> no and late well, well no, no but at, at times know. it could be I, i'm sure you guys don't have the experience of uh uh, shopping the uh, the public domain uh, bins where you could get uh, tapes that had six hours of movies on it, and oftentimes there were things like Charade and you know, Orson Welles' The Stranger that oh, yeah, looked yeah. like looked like utter shit, <laughs> but there were yeah. six hours of it on there. So that's oh yeah, it. public domain. God, we we it's so spoiled now. I mean, uh, you know, we're so persnickety about oh, this thing is not sixteen by nine or. Uh, you know, I mean, in the past, it was just, it was just... Before it was like, this exists. Yeah. That's enough I mean, for it. Like, this kind of looks like The Godfather. The, You're going to fucking watch or, it. Or, or McCabe, first... McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's like, oh, everyone's all stretched out and I'm missing half the information, but... Uh... Still the movie. Yeah, the first time I saw Metropolis was on a, like, a $2 VHS tape I bought from Kmart with no soundtrack whatsoever. So I just watched it in complete silence. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it... it, it it showed how much um, music does bring to even to, to silent. Well, one thing also that has been lost is late fees, and those are fucking terrible. Yeah. And like you know, there's a video store in Andersonville, um, and you know I go there when I can't find something anywhere else. It's a nice store. Uh, it is a nice store, but you know I fucking rented the room and I have thirty dollars in late fees, and I'm like, Wait, you know, that makes me you. a lot less. It, well, it is on me, but I have to freaking venture to a neighborhood where I do not live, you know, and who has the done? You can give it to me. I live there. I'll drop That's it off true. for you. Well, it's true. I'm I feel like retroactively <laughs> returned the room on top. Gotcha, buddy. I'm going to say we're getting a little sidetracked <laughs> here by, here by, by dealing with Nathan's late fee problems. <laughs> that should be a podcast in itself. So, so, was there any value in the limitations of video stores? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, when I worked at Blockbuster, I would try and find the little unusual things that were stuck on the shelves. And it's interesting how your filmic education is shaped by just what happens to be available. And what happens to be available is because, you know, some manager at that store two years ago, you know, ordering off a check mark sheet, 
pick something up, not, not even knowing what it was necessarily, and now it's there, and it's going to stay there until it gets to the whatever algorithm they use that says that's not being rented enough, and then it ends up being sold on the used shelf. So, you know, when I was working at Blockbuster, I actually would go through the foreign language film section, uh, one title at a time, um, and as a result, you know, I saw some really great things like Aguirre, Wrath of God, and the A's, <laughs> starting with the A's, uh, and then moving on through. And, and my experience with, with getting into foreign language film was, was shaped by that, in that the films I ended up watching were often more adventure-oriented or suspense-oriented. I watched a lot of Claude Chabral. Um, I watched Truffaut, but I watched, tended to watch the Truffaut films that were more genre exercises. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that shaped what, what I expect or what I look for out of, out of a lot of films just by what would happen to be available. You know, not to bring it just back to Blockbuster, but but um, Alex Papadimus had a good piece in Grantland that that sort of a, a, a kind of not unlike Nathan's was sort of a, a a very measured defense of Blockbuster, which which is that it did bring these these things like like your borders and 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 your uh, uh, like borders did for bookstores. It's they brought if only just slivers, still intriguing slivers of uh, film history to places that did not have them before. So I remember having a. Um, uh, walking through a video store in Springfield, Ohio, where I went to college, and here over here, and it's like, man, that movie's freaky. And this guy was pointing to the Seventh Seal, which, uh, which I don't know that that the, you know, at a blockbuster, that's that's I'm not sure it would have found its way to the, to these uh, uh, viewers who saw it and appreciated it uh, because it was at blockbuster. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that. That, that I think kind of speaks to your your sort of uh, benefits of having limits, uh, Noel. That you know, you, you work your way through what what you're given, and and that's uh, that's sort of kind of gives you. A, some guidelines. I'll add that when I worked at Blockbuster, uh, the person who was managing at that time trusted my opinion on things. And so he'd let me look at those sheets and he would say, should we order this or not order this? And I would oftentimes, you know, steer him into ordering some art films uh, or foreign films, which would then end up on the new release wall when they came out. And you know how people are when they go to video stores. A lot of people just stay on the new release wall. So as a result, I mean, I don't know, in my own small way in Hermitage, Tennessee, I, you know, steered some folks to some cool stuff. Well, and that's, I think, one of the interesting things about video stores is they obviously they were a commercial proposition. Um, but again, sometimes you can kind of sneak things past people. I remember a lot of people would rent uh, Exotica, Adam McGowan's Exotica, because it had a sexy box. And people are expecting, like, this is a sexy movie, like a Shannon Tweed type thing. And then, you know, it's kind of a bit of a Trojan horse type thing. We're like, oh, my God, this is like a beautifully wrought exploration of grief and, and mourning and whatnot. <laughs> um, you know, and or, actually, or they shut it off after 20 minutes. But, that's you know. true. <laughs> they just fast forward to, to, to the sexy parts. Um, but there was always that, that thing, you, you know, mean, that you people, mean, people would come for, you know, come for some boobs and end up with something, you know, that would move them on, on a profound level. <laughs> I think we could probably end on that uh, note. Uh, um, but I do actually have one question for you all. Uh, auto tracking or manual tracking? Which did you prefer? Manual. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. had to control it. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was that was one, like one of those early examples of advancements in technology that uh, were, did not advance at all. The the, the 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 you knew better than the machine how to how to track track your uh, VHSs properly. Uh, Keith, I got uh, a question for you. Sure. Did you have a rewinding machine in your house? No. Yeah, we did. It's oh. pointless because you know you're not going to wear out your your rewind function. But, no, but, but if you really if you want to watch something, I don't know why you want to do that. Yeah, it was. It was no, I think the guys. I think the guys who were ta- who were who were, who were, t- who were renting you know a dozen porn films a day probably had a lot of use for the yeah. rewinder. But uh, anyway, uh, and, and, where do they get the stamina? Uh, uh, gross, Keith, uh, Keith, Nathan, uh, Noel. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> 
Back in 1985, Alison Bechdel's comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For featured a character who said she'd only watch a movie if it A, had at least two women in it, who B, talked to each other about C, something other than a man. Flash forward nearly three decades later, and these requirements have been popularized as the Bechdel Test, a simple measure of a film's gender bias. The website BechdelTest.com has estimated that only 53% of movies pass these three requirements, a number that's all the more pitiful when you consider what a Bechdel test for men might score. Just recently, Swedish cinemas have gone so far as to adopt the Bechdel test into its rating system. Here to talk about the test and the controversies surrounding it are Tasha Robinson, Genevieve Kosky, and via Skype, Sam Adams. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Scott. Genevieve, I think we need to get this out of the way Hello. right away. Let's let's talk about uh, Chris Hemsworth with this shirt off and completely invalidate this podcast segment as the a Bechdel test. Yeah, pass. Ta- yeah. Tasha and I are only here to make this segment uh, pass the test, but I think we should just talk about how dreamy Scott and Sam are. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I need a yeah. I need a long, slow, shirtless pan across the both of them before I can. Really so it's get still it's still head. we're failing. We're still failing. <laughs> Let us pass. Can someone can someone make us pass? Well, actually, that's uh, that's we all have cosmos. By the way, this is- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of part of the question. Like we we just brought up Chris Helmsworth and uh, and you guys did now does this segment fail the Bechdel test? Many questions uh, seem to come up whenever people talk about the Bechdel test, and one of the big ones seems to be how can we make this more complicated? Like it's it's a very very simple test, and the the basic idea is let's look at this this really really simple rubric and see what percentage of films pass it. Like let's let's not necessarily analyze each film on a one by one basis and say this is a feminist film because two women talk to each other it's just like if you look at the in the aggregate how few few films pass it it becomes an interesting topic for conversation but it's turned into this thing that's it's like I, I don't know the fantasy baseball or something it's like how much can we get down into the tiny little statistics of it and people are now asking all these questions like do the two women have to talk for more than 30 seconds if they bring up a man at some point in the conversation does that invalidate the whole conversation even if the rest of the conversation isn't about a man like does it have to be a back and forth conversation what if there's a man present in the scene but he doesn't interact I've just I've seen so much hair splitting about this and it really really gets away from what's interesting about the test and the conversation around it. I think that hair splitting is actually what's interesting and useful about the Bechdel test because I think the danger about the test in its current form and how people use it in conversation most nowadays is that it's looked at as a pass-fail. This, this either is a Bechdel-approved movie or it's not. And that's kind of ridiculous once you get into that hair splitting. But it's good that it provokes those conversations of like, well, it really isn't because of this, or it actually it is because of this. And I, I think the danger is looking at the Bechdel test is like a pass, or it, it turns an essay question into a true-false question, basically a yes or no. And that's not really useful for anything other than just numbers, statistics, like creating, and like, like it's always good to have numbers for representation on, on film. Like it's useful as a tool for representation, but as far as the actual content of the movies, it's really not useful, for, I think, for reasons that we can probably go into. Sam, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I guess a little of both. I, I think, I mean, any quantitative metric that you're going to use has to be kind of content agnostic. You know, I mean, you can't really come up with, you know, where does this movie rank on the feminism scale? Um, that's a much more amorphous and, you know, and as a critic, uh, to me, a more sort of engaging and, and interesting topic. But, you know, Bechdel's uh, you know, strength and its weakness, I mean, just sort of its inherent characteristic is that it doesn't care, um, you know, how 
how, you know, how large the female characters are in the movie, necessarily what they're talking to each other about, as long as it's not a man, it could be, you know, car engines or something. So it, it's, you know, that's, that's kind of just how it works, you know, so it, it is, you know, bothers me on the one hand that a movie like Gravity, for example, um, which is unilaterally focused on Sandra Bullock's character, uh, you know, who is, uh, you know, in practically every frame, certainly every shot of the movie, but because there are only two characters on screen and one of them is a man, it, it, it you know, fails the test or doesn't pass the, the rule, as it was originally called. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, it, it's really interesting when you, if you flip it around and sort of make it, you know, does this movie have two male characters? Do they talk to each other about something about a, other than a woman? It's almost impossible to even think of a movie that doesn't pass that test. Uh, so, I, you know, that, that to me is where it gets really interesting. So the, the purpose of it to me is just to sort of force you to take a step back from a movie and, and, and just think about, you know, it's, it's another way of thinking about movies. It's a way to sort of, you know, in a way really take you out of the story and just think about it you know, as if you were flipping through the script without taking into account, you know, the way the film is made or any of their performance or anything, just just kind of running the numbers on it. To me, it's about as useful as the MPAA rating system um, in that, like, an R-rated movie could have 99 instances of the word fuck or it could have three and it would still be an R-rated movie. And a Bechdel-approved movie, I, I want a better term than Bechdel-approved, because I don't think Alison Bechdel herself really intended this test to be used as it's being used. She's, a, I mean, there's been a lot of interviews with her lately, and she always seems sort of politely baffled about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, she's pleased that it exists, but she has no idea how it suddenly became a, like, a societal thing. Like, where, why it resurfaced, why her name's on it. She just kind of seems to be like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Can we get to what I'm doing now as opposed right. to what I was doing in 1985? Yeah. But, but just like an R-rated movie could have, you know, 99 fucks or three fucks, a Bechdel-approved movie could have, you know, two lines of women talking about something other than a man, even if it's, like, about shoes, or it could be an entire movie and it would still fall under the same classification. So yeah, it's about as useful to me as, as the ratings, as the MPA rating system, which we'll is see, to say not very. I mean, that's why I think it's much more interesting in the aggregate, but you know, because I, I don't really enjoy sitting around debating endlessly. Like Natalie Portman uh, recently did some interviews where she was very excited about Thor the Dark World passing the Bechdel test. She was like, you know, it's, it's great. There are fully realized female characters and they're talking about nuclear physics, you know, how great it is that we pass this test. But if you actually look at that film, I mean, I, mean, I, I was I was watching pretty closely for this when I watched the film, and there's only one conversation between her and Kat Denning's character that doesn't start and end with a man with a man in the middle. The conversation that she's pointing at, where they're talking about their science, they literally start talking, start out talking about Thor, end up talking about uh, Chris O'Dowd's character, and somewhere in the middle, they exchange like one line about science. Well, Thor is not a man; he's a god. So therefore, <laughs> and Lando's not a system. He's a man. That's, that's good. Good note there. Um, the point is, I just I, like for me, it's, it's much more interesting in the aggregate. Every year now, uh, somebody is going to do a story on the best picture nominees for the Oscars. And the fact that typically maybe 
20 to 30% of them actually pass the Bechdel test. There are all of these conversations starting now where a bunch of people have started up the gay Bechdel test. Do two characters, do two gay characters in the film, A, exist, B, actually speak to each other, C, about <laughs> anything except a straight person. There's a people of color Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's expanding further and further into the culture as like a way of looking at representation as a whole. And that representation issue as a whole is just so much more interesting to me than sitting there nitpicking over whether like this particular scene is about shoes or car engines. I mean, I think we're kind of saying the same thing, but uh, kind of different ends of it, because like my my fear with the Bechdel test is that it's seen by some people as like a stamp of approval or a, a classification. It shouldn't be class- about classification, it should be about pro- provocation, about provoking conversation. And you're looking at that conversation in terms of the aggregate, like the conversation it provokes along like the spectrum of all films that fall under that. I'm looking at a more micro level, like the conversation it provokes about a specific film. Right. So, so I- how, do we, how do we feel about this, these Swedish cinemas that are actually using it as you know, a rating and effectively, I mean, there's a, a picture that's gone all around of one of the um, programmers kind of, you know, holding up this this letter A, I guess it's sort of the opposite of the scarlet letter <laughs> that would be, you know, affixed to these certain films. So it is, you know, very specifically being applied on a film-by-film basis. Right, and that, that, that's my fear about it, is that it's going to kind of turn into a sort of promotional tool. And the the Swedish cinema thing kind of points to that, as does all the Natalie Portman inter- interviews. Like, it's it's starting to be looked at as a stamp of approval when that's not what it is at all it's a it's a tool for a, for a bigger conversation i just as, as that bigger conversation goes whenever i hear somebody say i'm afraid that the that some people see the bechdel tool in the wrong way i i kind of roll my eyes a little i have to admit that genevieve i just i i feel like whenever anybody starts saying well i understand what this is for but i'm afraid other people won't i start to hear a pretty strong won't somebody please think of the children thing it's it's like i i want i want somebody to point me to the people who are saying this passes the bechdel test therefore this is a feminist movie i don't see any of that online what i see is people over and over saying but it might be misinterpreted. It might be misinterpreted by some people. It might be misinterpreted by stupid people. You you can't live your life around what the stupid people might do. Well, don't you think the the Swedish classification system is kind of an indication that people are doing that? I don't know, because I haven't seen a single story about that yet that was particularly nuanced. Mm-hmm. What I would love to see is more detail on exactly how... And this is here. Here I'm kind of contradicting myself, but there is sort of a difference between you know casual uh, conversation among people and turning it into an institutionalized thing. In the case where it's an institutionalized thing being used as a promotional tool, I would kind of like to see the guidelines. Like the MPAA ratings have gotten more and more nuanced over the years, where we've gone from you know R to are for occasional strong language with flashes of dorsal nudity. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's getting more and more specific about exactly what uh, what you're going to see. I'd kind of like to see the Swedish rating system that's like Bechdel test A for sustained strong conversation about mechanical parts in a <laughs> environmental setting. It's like, I, I would like to know how those ratings are derived before I really sure. judge its efficacy as a system, I guess. Leslie Felper and wrote a piece for uh, The Guardian, the, the British newspaper, uh, sort of drawing a line, I think, between the process of individually rating movies, which she felt was okay, and 
be um, the, I guess, one of these theaters, or maybe they're all doing it in concert uh, to do, they, they decided they wanted to have what they were calling a Super Sunday, which basically is, you know, only films that pass the test. And, and she sort of, Leslie Felpern kind of drew the line at it influencing or sort of driving programming decisions. She was, you know, she was saying, this is fine as far as it goes, but when you're, you're programming, you know, The Hunger Games or The Iron Lady, which Leslie personally finds kind of a repugnant movie and I, I haven't seen, then it's sort of, then the tail is wagging the dog, I think a little bit. And, and you know, I think, it, you know, I think Bechdel is a tool for talking about the culture as much as more than individual films. Well, what, well, how about this question though? What about going forward? What, what, what if that is? If you're a, a, a film producer, I mean, is this is this a, a question that you're going to want to have answered when you're making a movie? I mean, is, is that, that you you want to pass the test? Is that a good criteria in terms of you know creating whatever you're going to create? I mean, I would like to see counter programming to all of the stories that we've we've seen online about. Uh, women, specifically, usually women either in Hollywood or in screenwriting classes or in pitch meetings, being told, you know, you need to cut this, these uh, segments where women talk to each other because nobody cares about women and, and what they think or women and what they do, women and whatever goes on in their heads. There are an awful lot of stories about that um, on the internet, and I wouldn't mind a sort of like a resistance to that in terms of this discussion becoming a driver where people think, well, that is actually something that people are paying attention to and care about, like, in the aggregate. Right. I mean, I I think it is, if you're making a movie, I mean, I think it is a question that you should ask yourself, just as maybe you should ask yourself, you know, why, you know, why aren't there any people of color in this movie? Why are all the characters in this movie heterosexual? Why are all the characters in this movie middle class? you know, it's possible to answer that question, you know, because that's not what that movie movie's about or because, you know, I don't, you know, know a certain segment of society or whatever. I think it's a question you should be able to answer, and I don't think there's only one, one answer to it. But I definitely think it's something that should be in the mix along with lots of other creative decisions. Right. On, on the other hand, like, I, I don't know that it's a, a good thing for, like, a movie to be beholden to a, a checklist during production, like, to you know, be writing a script and like, uh oh, I don't have any, I don't have two female characters talking in here, better, better squeeze in, in a scene. Like that's not really useful or desirable. I, I think what is useful or desirable about the test is like, as an illustration of the way we collectively think as a society and therefore hopefully provoking creators to think differently or to buck against that in, in their actual creative process. I know that's like a very hair splitting argument, but the, my only like problem with the test is the danger for it to become too literalized. Not saying that, you know, Tasha, your argument saying that people always do that, but I think whenever you have an ABC, a, a checklist, that danger is there. I mean, I certainly don't think, like one of my favorite films of all time is Glengarry Glen Ross. There is not a speaking female part in that movie. That does not mean that there's a, a problem with the movie, that there's anything wrong with the movie. That movie would not in any way be uh, improved by a random scene thrown in with two female characters who don't matter in any way to the plot or the story talking to each other. I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of the checklist mentality. I am in favor of awareness. And I think what this kind of societal conversation about the Bechdel test has done more than anything is raise awareness a little. Granted, it's raised awareness in the way people talking about women and feminism and representation of any any group whatsoever in uh, any aspect of pop culture often does. It's raised a lot of like angry fist waving and wailing and, and beating against the walls. But it started a conversation and I just don't see how that could be a bad thing. No, I, I agree. 
and it's it's a good thing. <laughs> right in the, in the in the I mean in the case of Glengarry Glen, Glen Ross, um, or you know Shawshank Redemption is one of the other movies that's you know pointed out you know that doesn't pass the test, which given that it's you know set in a men's prison is uh, sort of you know par for the course. Um, but but Glengarry is you know I think as much as anything a movie about masculinity, and I think that you know exploring masculinity is you know part of the feminist project in a lot of ways i mean it's that has to be redefined along with everything else so uh, um you know i think it's yeah it's sort of interesting to focus on that aspect as well i you know i think it's definitely not i mean it's interesting that you know the rule as it was originally called actually you know had its origins in the sort of i will see movies that that you know obey this rule and i will not see movies that don't i mean that was the um the the idea that Alison Beckel originally took from her karate teacher, but um, you know that's not really the spirit it's, it, in which it's been applied. I mean, I think some of the concern about will people you know take this too seriously or use it this way is that I mean that is actually how it was presented as as sort of belonging to this secondary character in a in a comic strip. But I think it's kind of become something else, and I don't think you know there's somebody who does everything, but I don't think there's anybody who sort of this is the kind of first. Well, first line of defense when people are making their entertainment choices. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Tasha, uh, Genevieve, Sam, I believe we did it. We passed the Bechtel test in talking about Wait, you're just going to give the man the last word like that? <laughs> <laughs> Chris Hemsworth, man. It's all, it all it's comes all, back a, down to Chris it's Hemsworth. It's a process. It's a process. You know, what can I say? We're not all the way there yet. Uh, so uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. And now on to this week's game called Nude Review. The Celebrity Nude Database is exactly what it sounds like. It's the IMDb, but for people who want to know the movies in which their favorite celebrity has been sexy and or nude. But the user reviews sometimes include weird insights on the films themselves. For this game, I'm going to read a description from the CNDB and ask our panelists to name that movie. We'll be using our barnyard buzzers, and the Scott Tobias rule is in effect, meaning that you get a point off for a wrong answer. Uh, joining me are Genevieve Kosky, Nathan Rabin, and <laughs> that's, that is Matt Singer using his uh, holiday-appropriate fake buzzer. So let's get started. I will say, though, this was, this was a very dark uh, quiz for me to research. <laughs> not, it is, it, this site is not, a, not very well maintained. And I also want to share with you before we start, this was going to be too much of a giveaway to what the film was, but as an example, quote, this was her best bit of nudity until the awesome Monsters Ball. That would be Halle Berry. I Halle yes, Berry? And Swordfish. So, so <laughs> Somebody's right. really into uh, Billy Bob Thornton. I just enjoy, enjoy the, just completely context-free, really enjoying <laughs> awesome, uh, Monsters Ball. Well, okay, so we've, we've got 10 clues here. Uh, let's start with clue number one. Why are you reading this review? Haven't you seen this movie yet? What's wrong with you? There's lesbo kissing, hot sex with full frontal nudity, and on top of that, it is one. Of, it is one of the one no. of the best. <laughs> it is one of the best psychological thrillers of all time. Nathan, goodness, uh, I am going to guess that that motion picture would be uh, the movie Bound. No. Ooh. Any other guesses? Lesbo kissing, one of the best psychological thrillers of all time. Yes. Up uh, the Matt Singer. Uh, Diabolique. No. Oh. Uh, Wild Things. Wow. No. Uh, uh, so everyone gets negative one. It's Basic Instinct. I was. Good. That oh, was my geez. second choice. One of the best psychological instinct. thrillers of all time. But I thought the person might have better taste and, and say <laughs> Bound. 
All right. Oh, we're off to a good start. No. Yeah. yeah. All right. This is what happens when Keith doesn't play. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. So um, on to number two. His scenes are well described by previous users, but no one mentioned his dark autumn pubes. It's clear he did some grooming down below, as he does look well tended. There's full rear nudity too, like a weird scene where he pins his sister down on a couch and the towel around his waist slips down. Oh dear God. A sister. I'm too horrified to think. Yeah, our intern is really, uh, bite- she, she knows <laughs> she what knows it is. It. For I sure. know. Come on. Um, Come on, people. Dark Autumn Pubes, that was a total giveaway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was an implied searching through my, my delivery of Dark uh, Autumn Pubes, and oh, I'm coming up blank. For some reason, I feel like Harvey Keitel. Every time there's a man, it should be Harvey Keitel. Oh. But I don't recall him uh, pinning right, his well, sister the, down you, in you, a motion picture. Yeah, that, that was the that was the, the actual clue. That, yeah. Intern? Shame. That's right. Oh, so, so, so uh, the per- person not participating in the game gets more one. Light autumn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I was thinking like full, like, like red, flaming red. Yeah. No. You guys should have a separate podcast just <laughs> devoted to Michael Fassbender's uh, pubic hair. Uh, yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll take a look at the Blu-ray later. <laughs> um, all right. Number three. I didn't think there was any nudity until I saw the movie again, and most people would miss it completely. Before she launches into the, quote, your foreman sent me away lyric, most of her left nipple is visible for several seconds on the lower right frame of the screen as her dress hangs loosely from her shoulders. It doesn't beat her exposure in Love and Other Drugs, but it's there for completion. Nathan. Oh, goodness. Uh, that would have to be the motion picture entitled Les Miserables. That's right. Les Miserables. Okay. So, so Nathan is back to zero. Oh. Uh, which is, which is I'm no longer got the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Uh, designation. All right, here's a good one. The benchmark of teenage male nudity. It's, <laughs> it's hard to find a long stretch of this movie where his penis, balls, and beautiful ass aren't exposed. He is the perfect image of a tanned California surfer boy of the late 1970s. Victorian castaways? As if. Oh. Uh, Nathan? Oh, that would have to be my man, Mr. Christopher Atkins. In uh, the from film? the motion picture entitled The Blue Lagoon. That's right. Uh, uh, Victorian at Castaways as if this plays more like a dopey after school special with tits and ass oh yeah Uh, I I also want to mention too that I uh, actually auditioned for the male lead in Return to the Blue Lagoon when I was 13 years old for about a week and a half I decided I was going to be an actor and there was an open casting call for what I uh, would later found out was Return to the Blue Lagoon I I did not get the lead role I also have a Blue Lagoon story that I have to share every time uh, I talk about the movie, which is that in lieu of, of, of the birds and the bees talk, my, my parents oh sat, my God. sat my sister and I in front of the TV version cut of the Blue Lagoon. Oh, my God. That <laughs> is so awesome. That, oh, my gosh. All right. This is going to be a fast buzzer one. You're right. Yeah. But I, I couldn't resist. So for this one, I won't give you any text from the review, which sounds like a gynecological mm-hmm. exam. I'll just give you the subject line. As good as it gets. <laughs> Nathan? That would have to be uh, Miss Helen Hunt uh, in the motion picture entitled uh, Sessions. Yeah, that's right. The Sessions. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> right? She is... Uh, I, She's very naked in that movie. Uh, she, is. she is. I just love that. I'm, I was very impressed by that. <laughs> I was racking my brain like, wait, there's nudity and as good as it gets? So. No. <laughs> oh, I just, I, I, I also like that, that it's for someone's like, idea of, of, of nudity, the best possible nudity. <laughs> 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 Not in, in the sense. 
goodness. She is a lovely older woman. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so where are we at now? We got Nathan at two, and everyone and the others at negative one. Nathan, this is just this is uh, this is all you. The real sensational nude part is when he's being spied on by a Native American. He begins to chase the strange man before stopping. Nathan? Uh, that would have to be the movie uh, The Scarlet Letter. No, that's oh, a negative. Let me crap. continue unless All anyone right. else wants to buzz in. He begins to, to chase the strange man before stopping, realizing his complete nakedness and humiliation. The camera pulls back. And we are shown a 10-second full-fledged backside shot. His ass has perfectly... Has perfectly ovalish cheeks, which is somewhat on the flat side, but still unbelievably mouth-watering to look at. Oh, oh see, God. the one I was thinking had heart-shaped cheeks, so now <laughs> I don't know. It was semi-mouth-wateringly <laughs> delicious to look at, not completely uh, mouth-wateringly. Native American. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. I want to give a joke answer, but I don't want to lose a point. All right. All right. I, I, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, dances with Wolves? That's right. Dances with Wolves. <laughs> oh, yes. Of course. Yeah, oh, that perfect. Makes sense. Yep, it's, it was the ovalish cheeks, in, in, dead in, giveaway. In, so Nathan went down one, and, and Genevieve went up one. So where where are we at right now? Nathan's at one, Genevieve's at zero, and uh, and Matt's at negative one. Hmm. Okay, it gets intriguing. Yeah. Okay, this is another. This is this is only one line. So uh, another quick buzzer thing. I would jump off the Empire State Building to be Matt in that scene. Matt being the name of the actor. <laughs> uh, oh God, I'm. Nathan? Jesus. Oh, God. This is very dumb of me. Um, but oh, God, da, 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 da. I'm feeling it has to be Naomi Watts. Uh, that's what the Empire State Building reference has to be. So I'm going to guess that it's Mulholland Drive? Uh, no. Uh, no. Matt's the name of the actor? Matt the is the name of the actor. Mm. As if, as if the user is familiar uh, <laughs> with, this, with, with this guy's on a first name basis the with the State Hollywood Building. actor. Yeah. Jump off. Uh, I think it's. I think I. Uh, I, th- I don't think I gave enough uh, away. It's. Uh, it's wild things. I, I guess that earlier. Oh, Can I, I get have... a retroactive? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you had. You had to have. You had to have in your in your head that that was going to be there. So that was on me. Uh, ne- next clue. Alfred Hitchcock could have made this film. Saying it sucks is like saying Rear Window sucks. I consider myself an intelligent gent. I don't watch hockey. I despise wrestling and Eminem blows. And my advice is see blank for the film and enjoy the Rebecca as a perk. Nathan Raven. That would be the motion picture entitled Femme Fatale. Femme Fatale. Uh, Rebecca Romaine Stamos would be the woman that uh, is being referred to. <laughs> Wait, Boy. so that guy just compared Femme Fatale to Rear, Rear Window? Window. <laughs> Rear well, Window. Well, he is very derivative of Hitchcock. Though yeah. I will say, I will say if, if uh, you know, as a De Palma aficionado... I, well, I, I still don't think Femme Fatale is quite up to rear window, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, I do consider myself an intelligent gent as well. So Nathan keeps kind of going, going up and down. Is he still at one? Is it one? Okay, uh, we've got two more left. Uh, the chance for a big Matt Singer comeback is... <laughs> can I hear the, the gobbling sound just to make sure you're, you're still there, Matt? Okay. The women accidentally break his thong in the back. After this happens, he does a somersault toward the camera. It is almost impossible to see anything at regular speed, but if you watch the scene on DVD Blu-ray one frame at a time, uh, yes. Magic Mike? Magic Mike. Ooh, Coming for you, Raven. Nice. No, it's impressive. But if you watch the scene oh, wow. on DVD Blu-ray one frame at a time, you can clearly see his totally bare ass when, he, when it faces the camera and his legs are up in the air. The best part is that you can actually make out his butthole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the bu- that is the best part. Because <laughs> I feel like we have discovered our most disgusting and most popular game. And, and the bottom of his balls. Uh, Absolutely God. gorgeous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but I will say that this 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 alone makes a very good argument for for uh, physical media, right? Yeah, you, it certainly is. You can't do uh, streaming. You can't. Uh, you, you really can't get. Really that. hard to, to to delineate the texture of people's balls. You cannot via Netflix streaming. <laughs> you can't see. Because have something to aspire to. Oh God! All right, here's the last one. Where where are we at? Right. Is it does. Uh, it, one to one. Okay. God. Matt, Matt's got, Matt can be the spoiler here, but this is this will this will be uh, the deciding uh, question. This is very exciting. Although he spends too much time primping in the shower, watching him soap himself and hearing his strong voice come. <laughs> Commentating throughout, certainly got my blood boiling. One of my new favorites. Too much time primping in the shower. I don't want to lose that precious point. I know. Yeah, I know. Could, this, could this end up being a tie? The two w- words you need to focus on are primping and commentating. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I don't. I yes. don't. I don't I, Go ahead. American Beauty? American Psycho. Psych- oh, that's what I'm... Mm. I think... Na- oh, I should you took a chance. Can, can, I, yeah. can I get a half point no. for the... Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, okay. my God. How could I freaking forget? First of all, I was, I was in my mind, I really had Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. And this image of John Travolta, like... I had the same. Yeah, oh, my God. It's, like, so sexy. I look so amazing. I got, Unbelievable. I got really fixated on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Wow. <laughs> He sings in the shower. To, right? Oh right, but but, yeah. but there's no. But he doesn't. Uh, the commentating. Sort of that should have been the, the commentating yeah. and the yeah. and the primping. Yeah. I mean, you know. But the, I I just enjoy again these sites. There, there's no. Uh, it, these are just context-free <laughs> reaction. I mean, this is the whole sequence of this. You know, psycho American oh, yeah. psycho, right. sort of preparing himself. You know, removing his. You know, he's got his little. Facial mask and the whole yeah. thing. So I guess Nathan wins with one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's going to knock over all <laughs> of our equipment. It's the completely pointless nature of that triumph. They nearly knocked off a microphone. Stand. And we haven't quite proved yet that, that we can handle this, these games remotely, Matt Singer. Because uh, we didn't well, get a lot of gobbling you can. in. I, clearly, I can't. I mean, well, that was an embarrassment. Uh, given how much time I spend on the celebrity nudity database, yeah. I think I could <laughs> Yeah, it's a disappointing performance, for sure. But yeah. we'll, we'll have you on for the, for the, for the Stallone quiz. You'll uh, crush <laughs> yeah, that. I'll need to redeem <sighs> myself at some point. <laughs> All right. Uh, Matt Singer, uh, Nathan Rabin, Genevieve Kosky, uh, thank you for playing. Sweet. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in... Nathan Raven. And... Tasha Robinson. ...have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, movie-related sandwich, whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, who wants to start here? I'm suddenly regretting not having a movie-related sandwich to pick. <laughs> I know. Well, why, don't, why don't we hold that? Maybe you'll think of a movie-related sandwich. We'll start with Nathan. Nathan, three... Two, one, go. I would like to recommend the movie In a World, which is written and directed by and starring Lake Bell. And it's kind of what you're looking for in movies, which is an authentic and original voice. And among you, that has never really been explored before, which is the voiceover world. And it has this really, really lovely quality to it. And also very, very smart and very incisive about gender. It's a pretty fiercely feminist movie, but not in a way that shrill or calls attention to itself. It's really, really lovely. And heralds Lake Bell as a really important, really exciting new voice in the world of independent filmmaking. And, uh, whoop, uh, 28.86 seconds there, Nathan. Can I have his extra two seconds? Well, one and, one and a half seconds. <laughs> not even the one and a half. Uh, 
All right, Tasha, ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Okay, watching Joan Sales movies can be a little bit like standing in a tub of cold water and adding warm water until it finally gets comfortable. Once you get where you're going, the results are terrific and you don't want to leave, but it can be a little bit of a wait. His latest film, Gopher Sisters, is fascinating from the opening scene, which incidentally passes the Bechdel test for the movie. It's about two old friends who fall out in high school and get back together as an adults on the different sides of the criminal divide and go on a quest together. It's fascinating. It's a beautiful character piece. It's uh, got a terrific role from Edward James Olmos and it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, um, I, I, I like everyone's passion here, uh, uh, but but uh, I'm gonna go ahead and give it to Tasha for the metaphor there. I enjoyed the it's I enjoyed good. the hot and cold water metaphor. I enjoyed that metaphor as well. Very nice, well done. And also, you're kind of channeling the micro machines guy. <laughs> Yeah, and the generational this sweet from, spot there. This from the fastest talker in the place. Well, I mean, I, fastest slash not understandable. Uh, I think you should should bank your extra second and a half for every uh, every one of these we do, and eventually it will become uh, Nathan Rabin with two and a half hours. To sell. <laughs> <laughs> Though I, I will give, give Nathan some credit for having good uh, voice over voice there. In a well, world, in a world, world. Well, it's very catchy to do that. Uh, but uh, but I, I've seen I've seen in a world and can also recommend it. Yeah, it's a charming little film. For the most part. Okay, uh, so Tasha, Nathan, thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. That does it for Episode 9 of the Dissolve Podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And if you have any questions or comments for the Dissolve, you can send them to feedback at thedissolve.com, and we may read or respond on a future podcast. The Dissolve Podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. Sweet VHS dreams, everyone.